My mother-in-law is in a book club. She's been in this book club for like 30 years or something, her and all these these ladies. It's so cool. They take it very seriously. Like sometimes I see Jan and she's just like, oh, I have to read 50 pages by tomorrow. And I'm like, man, you guys are legit. This is a legit book club. My dream is that one day Jan and her book club will read my memoir. But anyway, she is always giving me her books that she's already read. And one day recently, she came over and she plopped this book into my hand and she said, it's a memoir. And she knows that that's like all I'm reading these days. And I, I knew I never heard of it. I knew nothing about it. It's called What Remains by Carol Radziwill. And she just told me a little bit about what it's what it's about. And she said, this woman, Carol Radziwill, was married to Anthony Radziwill, who was a prince. And he was also the cousin of John F. Kennedy Jr. And John F. Kennedy Jr. was married to Carolyn Bessett. The book is about how, and I'm sure some of you probably are aware of this, but John F. Kennedy Jr. and his wife, Carolyn Bessett, died in a plane crash. Um, I believe there was only one other person in the plane, and it was Carolyn Bessett's sister. Um, But John F. Kennedy Jr. was flying the plane, and it was this horrible accident. And three weeks after they died, Carol's husband, Anthony, died of cancer, and he had been fighting cancer for five years. So within three weeks of each other, she lost her husband and John F. Kennedy Jr. and Carolyn, who were basically their best friends. They were like this foursome. So it's this very tragic story. And I was like, oh, my God, like this sounds really sad, but also very interesting. Like I, I don't know anything about the Kennedys. So it would be really cool to get this like inside look at this person in our history. This prologue was the best prologue I've, I've read so far. It opens with the plane crash when John and Carolyn die. And maybe it has something to do with the fact that Carol Radswell has a broadcast journalism background, but the story that she told was so riveting. On a side note, I've been having a lot of morbid thoughts lately. My therapist said this was normal mom stuff. Um, I've, especially it's been around flying. Like I'm always like thinking about death, basically. Me dying, Sam dying, the kids dying. And I, I struggle with flying, but Recently, it's been worse. Sam and I recently went on a trip and we left the kids with the grandparents. And um, I just, I was, had a lot of anxiety. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's because of this book. Because it's so vivid, the way she describes everything, that it's it made me think about what it would feel like to be in a plane when it crashes. And so then I'm like thinking about it all the time. I've been thinking about it so much, in fact, that my life coach suggested an exercise where I write out the entire scene that I like I make up these hypothetical scenes in my head and and write it I was very reluctant to do this um, because usually I will think about it and then I will try to stop myself from thinking about it so to write about it you know and write all the way up until we we die I I didn't know how it would go and it was horrible Thankfully, my husband was out of town and the kids were at school. I was just crying, uh, sobbing so loud. And I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing that if people were home. And I had to keep taking breaks because it was just so terrifying. And I was taking breaks and I was like, I don't want to keep doing this. Like, this is horrible. But because I have to finish things that I start, I was like, well, and I kept telling myself, maybe there will be something on the other side of this that will make it worth it. So I, I forced myself to finish 
the whole scene and, and in the scene it's it's Sam, me and the kids and the plane we the cra- the plane crashes and we all die. Later the day, later on in the day, I um I reread it and it actually seemed pretty trite when I reread it. Like when I was writing it, I of course I cannot help myself. I'm like, oh maybe I'll share this as a newsletter. But when I reread it, I was just like, oh, this isn't very good. This is like it almost seemed like um cheesy. Like our death was cheesy. But anyway, I, I still don't know how I feel about this exercise that I did. Um, I haven't been having, I guess, those horrible, morbid thoughts since. Um, so so maybe it worked, but only time will tell. But anyway, I want to talk about this prologue. And I am going to read the prologue, but not the whole thing, because it's 10 pages long, which is not that long. But as far as just like reading to you guys, I feel like it's it's too much. So I'm going to read it in order, but I'm going to skip some parts. So here's how the book opens. Three weeks before my husband died, a young couple smashed their plane into the Atlantic Ocean off the Massachusetts shoreline well after the mid-July sun had set. It was reported in the news at 941, but I knew the general time because I had spoken to the woman less than an hour before. The pilot was my husband's cousin, John Kennedy. His wife, Carolyn Bessett, was my closest friend. While we were making plans, before they took off from Caldwell, New Jersey, she called me from the plane. We'll fly to the vineyard tomorrow, after the wedding. We can be there before dinner. It was a short conversation, because I was going to see her the next day. I hung up the phone and opened the book I was reading, and an hour later she was dead. Afterward, I tried to find something to explain what happened. Was it cloudy? Were the stars out? But the night was ordinary. It usually is, I think, when your life changes. Most people aren't doing anything special when the carefully placed pieces of their life break apart. According to the accident report, the plane broke the surface of the ocean three minutes after the pilot sensed a problem. At 9.38, he made a curious turn. 180 seconds later, the last 30 of them aimed directly at the water, their stories ended abruptly. I wonder if he felt the awkward motions of the plane in those minutes. It's likely he did not. If you close your eyes in an airplane, you don't feel up or down. You don't feel yourself tilting left or right. You don't feel anything really, and your senses tell you it doesn't matter. Clouds were hiding the familiar strings of lights that paint the coastline. He might as well have been flying with his eyes closed. I need to talk to you, I said. My husband Anthony was dying, and we were all trying to pretend that he wasn't, that everything was fine. I can't hear you, Lamb. I'll see you tomorrow, okay? The accident report shows the pilot made a turn after passing Point Judith, Rhode Island. He turned east, away from the coast, away from where he was going. And then another turn, and then another. It was puzzling to everyone, including the investigators. And after months of plotting radar signals, studying twisted pieces of wreckage, constructing maps and charts, and speculating about state of mind, they confirmed what they had suspected. The pilot was disoriented. He may have turned, some suggested, hoping to spot something familiar. Perhaps he felt a slight tilt of the plane, but it was more likely that the instrument panel caught his attention, his compass shifting slowly. He may have tried to correct it, turning the rudder slightly, or adding pressure to the controls. But when it doesn't feel like you're turning, it feels wrong to correct it. He wouldn't have corrected it enough. He wouldn't have corrected it at all. He would have followed what his senses were telling him to do, an overwhelming feeling of what he should do, and it would be exactly the wrong thing. It's possible that nothing felt unusual in the plane as his altimeter began to unwind, marking a perplexing descent. Slowly at first, then at a sickening rate. It is likely he was watching this helplessly, his senses of no use to him, telling to ignore, even then, irrefutable evidence. The handful of controls all showing deadly readings. She may not have noticed any of this. She wouldn't have seen the airspeed on the control panel, pegged in the red, reflecting the quickening pace of the ocean, rushing up to them. 180 seconds. John might have felt annoyance, perhaps, before panic. Frustration and then fear. His pulse accelerating as one replaced the other. 
The water would be as black as the sky, like concrete, at their rate of descent. It is possible that he thought for the entire three minutes that they were going to crash. Probable that he thought it for 30 seconds. I sometimes mark time now in three-minute intervals, when I am talking on the phone, or walking around the city, or sitting on a plane. I glance at my watch and reflexively mark the time. There is so much that can happen in three minutes. It's enough time to think you can fix things. I wonder if in those last three minutes he called out to her. I have learned that engines sound different at that rate of descent, a whining noise and much louder as the plane starts to starts into a corkscrew. There was a hard shift to their flight in the last 30 seconds. Did he call out to her? Panicked? His voice strained? Three minutes, 180 seconds, is enough time to think through whether he should tell her and then to struggle with his decision. It is plenty of time to consider who would be waiting for a phone call on the shore. It is the length of an average story on the evening news. I was reading Anna Karenina by a light in the living room. The window near me looked out onto a pond and then farther to the water where, the la- where they lay for four days. Their crash didn't disturb a soul until later. I was sitting comfortably in a room where I had seen them days earlier, in the house where we'd agreed to meet the next evening before she hum- hung up the phone. Thirty seconds is what it would have taken me to read a few paragraphs in my book. Thirty seconds, and I am completely absorbed in a scene in someone else's story. Thirty seconds, after Anna Karenina's final and fatal decision leaves her kneeling awkwardly on the railroad tracks, the train a split second away from her inelegant end. It is enough time to become anxious, then calm, and then anxious again, as you might do reading an account of the end of a life. I may have paused once, put a marker in the book, and taken a sip from the glass on the table. This is very likely what I am doing as my best friend rushes to the end of her life in water visible from the window of the room where I am sitting, enjoying an unusual moment of quiet calm in an otherwise restless summer. She had started a tradition the Christmas before, Christmas dinner, just the four of us. Every year we'll do it. Don't you think we need a tradition? She had asked. Marta will come and cook a big Christmas dinner. It sounds great, I replied, caught up in her enthusiasm. Once it was the four of us, with all our dreams and plans, and then suddenly there was nothing. (sighs) That was a prologue. Oh my god, I just like got emotional reading it. It's so intense. So, okay. The one thing that is stood out to me so much and has been really, I've been thinking about a lot lately is structure. I'm learning more and more that structure is everything. In fact, I've recently listened to David Perel in his podcast, How I Write. He interviewed Kevin Kelly and Kevin Kelly was talking about the importance of structure. And he said, you want it to disappear. You want the structure to be so graceful and intuitive so that you don't notice it. You notice structure when it's absent and you notice it because there's a jump. There's a logical hole, you're confused, you're unsatisfied, you're distracted. All these things are happening because of the lack of the right structure. And when you kind of smoothly are going on and you're kind of surprised but not confused and all this good stuff, that's because of great structure. So what makes great structure? Well, I mean, that's the you know art of writing and creating something. You, you get to decide, but I'll tell you what it's not. It's not linear. Linear writing is boring, okay? So to just go from the beginning until the end is boring. And in this prologue, she is jumping all over the place. She tells us, first of all, right up front, a couple dies in a plane crash three weeks before her husband dies. Boom. You got to let people know up front what they are getting into. Then she weaves the phone conversation throughout, which is building up the suspense before the crash. And this is like a pretty powerful phone conversation. She talked with Carolyn right before they got on the plane. And so she says it up at the top. She says... You know, Carolyn says, we'll fly to the vineyard tomorrow. And then a little bit, a couple pages later, she says, I need to talk. Like Carol says to her, I need to talk to you. And she says, I can't hear you. I'll see you tomorrow. So she, she puts in little snippets of the phone conversation throughout instead of putting it all in one chunk. 
She also freezes time. And I thought this was really interesting. It took three minutes for them to die. But she takes us through each moment. She wonders about what he did, how he felt, what she did, if she knew. She talks about the time of three minutes and how long it lasts. She talks about what she was doing at the time and the book that she was reading. And she really like zooms in on the story she was reading. And it was so captivating that she just like took her time to go through every single thing that was happening. She also moves to the future. She talks about the accident report and the facts and details of exactly what happened, just like a reporter would. She mentions a Christmas tradition that she started the year before, actually that Carolyn started the year before. And this is really important because she comes back to this at the end. The last scene of the book, the last chapter of the book is their Christmas dinner the year before the three of them die. And she doesn't say much about her husband in the prologue, uh, just that he was dying of cancer and that they were pretending that he wasn't. So I asked myself, how can I do these things? And then I thought, okay, well, when does this work best? Because I'm thinking that this, this style of journalistic, intense writing is best served with tragedy or death or an accident or something scary or, or maybe even nothing happens, but there's a potential that something bad could happen. And so then there's a lot of build up to that moment. And when I say like like this, I mean like this very like reporter-esque style with facts and this freezing of time, um, which is where the thoughts come in and then uh, jumping back and forth between the present and the future. So in my life, um, I haven't had any like anything really big or horrible happen, you know, knock on wood, um, thankfully. But there are definitely like little tiny moments in my life that were scary And like, you know, for example, like this car accident I was in earlier this year. And if I were to, I have no idea if that's going to be in my book or not, but if I were to include that story, it would be, you know, a a couple paragraphs maybe, or like a a page or two. And I would, I think I would want to take this approach and just condense it down. Okay. I'm excited about this next part. This was my biggest aha moment of the whole book. And it didn't happen while I was reading it. And it didn't even happen while I was transcribing it. It happened... When I copied all of my notes into a Google Doc to create, figure out what am I going to talk about for the podcast, and I just really liked this this paragraph, and I, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to say about it. But then when I was doing this, I figured out that the moments in our life that are the most emotional, you know, the ones that we remember so viscerally, those moments do not need to be described at all. And I wrote in my notes, whoa, like I was writing this out and I was just like, I couldn't believe it. Like, and I wanted to share this with you because for yourself, when you're reading, it's not just, you can't just read and be done with it. When you read and you take notes and then you look at each individual note you take and think, okay, why, 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 why did this resonate with me so much? That's when you really figure things out. So I'm going to read this little paragraph to you. And then I'll talk about it. So on page 207, she writes, I have been hoarding like a squirrel for winter, all my acorns of hysteria, nudging them as they come to a little place in my head for later. There hasn't been time to fall apart. Anthony won't tolerate it. Worry, panic, fear simply serve no useful purpose. The important thing is to keep them apart from one another because I am afraid if they touch these tight little balls of suppressed heartache, they will explode. And I am trying my best to save this for some fuzzy, uncertain point in the future. 
when everything is over, when there is no more bad news and nothing to be afraid of and nothing left to worry about. There will be a time, I tell myself, it will be clear, and I will have some period of time to look out above the clouds, a period of time long enough to let it all out like the air in a balloon. Okay, so I should have mentioned, this is like, her husband has been sick for a long time, and it's just like, she's nearing a breaking point. And when I was first um, rewriting these in my notes, I was like, oh, she's talking about this point in the future where she's going to have that, that breakdown. And then I'm like, she never has the breakdown. We don't ever see the moment. And that's because we get it as the reader. Like we all have had those moments. We all know that it's coming because it's, it's obvious. Now, do we need to see it happen? And what I learned from this book is no, you don't even need to show it. I'm always trying to like figure out like, okay, what's like, what's the most original way? What's the most like different way I can write about this moment that was so hard instead of just not writing about it? I don't need to write about how my heart hurts and I curled up in a ball on the floor and I sunk to the ground and I sobbed so hard. Like we get it. The audience knows based off of everything that has come to this point, that this is an outburst that is going to happen. And so we don't need it at all. Is your mind exploding? Because <laughs> mine is. I am just like, I can't believe this. This is like making me rethink everything. And it's so freeing, isn't it? To not have to figure out how to describe this this horrible moment or even a, an elated moment like of, of happiness. It's, but usually the, the moments that we write about or moments I write about are the, the more like traumatic ones or the horrible ones or the sad ones. Um, I think that there's a lot of, of cliche thoughts that happen when we are so sad or so happy that we could just skip it all together. Okay, we are at the ending. On page 232, it says Friday, July 16th, 1999. And the first sentence is, I had prepared for an approaching sorrow, but not as it turned out for the one that was nearest. So Anthony is very close to dying. And then John and Carolyn get in this plane crash. And so she starts on page 234 and she writes, the phone rings at midnight and I am sleeping so soundly I think it's in my dream. Anthony picks it up and hands it to me without a word. I had meant to move it that afternoon so it wouldn't wake him. I take the phone into the bathroom and shut the door before I put it to my ear. Hi, I whisper. I think it's John. Is everything okay? Oh, hi, Carol. I'm sorry to wake you. It's Pinky. Pinky is a friend of John's. He's calling from Hyannis. Listen, I was supposed to pick up John at the airport, and they're not here yet, and I was just wondering, are they there with you? A simple question. Are they there? A door slamming shut on your life. I feel my heart beating when I hear this voice. It is midnight, past the time when people call. It is the wrong voice, and I know everything now. I want to hang up before the noises form words, before sounds and then words can push their way out of my throat. I want to hang up on this voice that's all wrong, go back to bed to my husband, have a few more hours of my life. So we're back to the prologue. We are back to the opening scene of the plane crash, and now there's just all these new rich details coming in, and I feel like it's it's just as intense and it's actually more intense because now I'm so invested in the characters. I'm invested in Carol and Anthony and John and Carolyn. And it's so sad. We're back in this like journalistic approach where there's a lot of facts and the the feelings are left out of it. So on page 244, she writes, Monday, the Coast Guard changes its efforts from search and rescue to search and recovery. And we begin to plan the funerals. And then a little bit further down the page, she writes, 
They are found seven miles from the vineyard on Tuesday. And let me tell you what, when I read these two sentences, I was just like, oh my God, like I felt sick. And all she's doing here is telling us the facts. And what this taught me is that facts are more shocking than if you try to describe the shocking thing that happened. Like if you just tell us, like the Coast Guard changed their efforts from search and rescue to search and recovery, oh God, like, and that she's just saying, like, this is what we did. We planned the funerals. She didn't say what she thought. She didn't say what she felt. She said, this is what we did. And this is what the search and rescue team did. They are found seven miles from the vineyard on Tuesday. Like that's something that you would read in the newspaper. All right. And then the very end, um, she writes at the top, Christmas 1998. And it's coming back to that thing that she mentioned in the prologue where Carolyn was talking about how uh, the, the Christmas tradition that she had that she wanted to start the year before with the four of them. So I'm going to read you this last paragraph. On page 261, she writes, We use the word tradition over and over. Our new tradition, Carolyn says, we'll do this every year. And we talk breezily, brazenly about the years ahead, our futures and where they'll take us. Anthony wants to build a log cabin in Alaska. John offers to cut down the trees. These are the sorts of things you talk about when one year is ending, another waiting to begin. After dinner, we sit in the living room for a little while before they leave. John on the tiger print couch, Carolyn snuggled drowsily on his lap. I squeeze next to Anthony on his chair and he kisses my cheek. I could stay here like this forever, but we're all leaving in the morning to get on planes. And so we stand and stretch and start the motions of ending the night. It was nice, wasn't it? She whispers in my ear as I help her with her coat. We should do it again next year, shouldn't we? Yes, we will, I say. The beginning and the end of this book were just so well done. She started with this shocking, tragic event, and then she came back to the same event with new details. And then at the very end, she come, she calls back to the scene that was first mentioned in the prologue. So not only did I love the prologue, I also loved the ending. Um, after I finished the book, I Googled it. And this is what I did with... Um, the Glass Castle too. And when I did that, I, I found out that they turned it into a movie which with Woody Harrelson, which I, I still haven't seen. I'll, I'll have to watch it at some point. And that's also how I found out about the ending being so much, having so much more meaning than I had originally thought. So with this one, I, I couldn't decide if I was going to tell you this at the beginning or at the end, but I decided to wait until the end so that you wouldn't have any judgments like I would have had. But I found out that this woman that wrote this book, Carol Radziwill, was a real housewife of somewhere like, I don't know, New York, I don't know where. And if I had known that a real housewife wrote a memoir, I would have been like, I'm not reading that. I would have been like, this is going to be like a celebrity memoir, which you guys know how I feel about those. It's a good lesson in not judging people because Carol Radziwill is an excellent writer. And I, I had a lot of fun reading this book and I learned a lot. So that is a wrap on What Remains by Carol Radziwill. I am currently reading Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. It's very funny and crude. And um, he writes with a lot of self-deprecation. It might be a little bit too much. Um, regardless, I'm sure I will have some good nuggets to share with you. And finally, I just finished my last cohort ever of Rite of Passage. I worked with um, the team for seven cohorts, which was lasted like three years. The reason it was my last cohort is because I want to focus on my memoir, which really means focusing on this podcast. And some students asked me how they could continue to learn from me or if I offer any services. And my answer has been this podcast. Like I am learning so much from these books and sharing everything that I learn here. And I'm going to continue doing this until the book just spills out of me. And I am not at that point yet, which means I'm just not ready. 
But the thing that I love doing week after week is learning about memoir and sharing it with you. So I'll see you next time.